All right. As we come back to our seats, if you want to open the Bible you brought to Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, feel free to do so. Or you can read along on the screen or if you have a Bible app, whichever works best for you. I want to uh, acknowledge something that I know our college students wrapping up school this week and may not be with us for a few weeks. But we just want you to know that we're going to miss you while you're gone. We care for you. We're praying for you. We know you're probably exhausted and wore out after these finals and papers, and so we hope that you can have some good rest and maybe a, even a season of maybe renewal with the Lord over this Christmas break. And so Ephesians, we've, we've kind of cast this last part of Ephesians that we're going to be looking at in December under the banner of This is War. We're actually going to sing a song called that at the end of the gathering this morning. Because when Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't come into a world of, of holiday cheer, right? And I love holiday cheer, so I'm not here to be Debbie Downer on that. I like, I like Christmas, maybe too much. But when Jesus enters the world, he enters a world that is broken, a world that is dark, and he invades the darkness as the light of the world. And so we want to acknowledge that. We don't want to, to just sort of uh, paper over the realities that are easy to do in our lives, but look at them through the lens of the victory that we have in Christ. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, we'll look at this week as we begin to see what it means for us to be a church that engages in the warfare that Jesus leads us in and we see so beautifully in the story of Christmas. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, I'm just going to read this verse to connect us to where we'll be going this whole month. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Father, we thank you that you are with us this morning. Forgive us for any moment where we just mouth words earlier and now bring us, God, wholeheartedly into your presence through your word and spirit. We pray, God, that you would help us to hear truth. What is not true, we ask, would just fall to the floor. We pray, God, that you would change us. We pray, God, you wouldn't just stir our intellect, our curiosity, as we consider such magnificent things this morning, but that you would stir our hearts towards a deeper love for you, love for others, and a deeper, deeper understanding and experience of the gospel of the kingdom your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen well one year my son Josiah my youngest one he's not in here he got an easel for Christmas and it seemed like just a, a wonderful idea that he would be able to sit and and draw and, and just use all of his creativity but when we got this easel as a present one of the first things that we realized is that the vision behind it of how beautiful it was going to be and how empowering it was going to be for him is that this thing was a nightmare to even put together. 
I mean, it had like 500 pieces. I mean, it's only like two or three feet tall, and you would think, you know, you just have a few posts. No, it like every little bitty piece had to be assembled, had to be kept, and had to be very carefully put together. And then one day, once we got it assembled, and once there was some measure maybe of joy that it had with it, I don't know, we come home and we find that he had took the whole thing apart. It was in a million pieces. And this was probably three years ago, and it has never been reassembled to this day. It was just a mess, and I think as we moved this last time, don't tell my mom because she bought it. Sorry, Mama, if you're listening. Is we just kind of said, eh, I think it's time for that to go either to Goodwill or to the trash. And so I don't know where it ended up. But it, it, it seemed like such a wonderful idea. And it seemed fairly simple, although we knew some work would be involved. And yet it ended up being something that was extremely difficult. And in some ways, even in our family, extremely divisive on putting it together. What are we going to do with it now that it's not put together? And it was just an extreme surprise. In some ways, this is how it can be when it comes to the Christian life is we can cast this beautiful vision that God gives us. We can talk about what it means to, to, to be the children of God who are experiencing His grace, who are called to live for His glory, what it means to be the church, that we would bind together in a mission that God has given us that is bigger than any everyday obstacle and circumstance that we might face. And we can, we can have this sort of passion and this sort of perspective that I'm finally going to live in to the purposes that God has created me for. And then all of a sudden, in much more difficulty than any easel could be, we find ourselves, as it were, taking off at a full sprint and just running directly into a wall. Maybe some of you have did the whole glass door in the house, and you're excited, I'm going to go outside, and then bam! And if you're honest, that's how some of you can feel. It's how I can feel, I know, so often when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to living life in the type of intimate community that our church is committed to, is it can sound really great and it can sound really beautiful, but when you actually have to know people, love people, when you actually have to make yourself vulnerable to be known and to be loved, it gets messy fast. It's a battle, it's a fight, it's hard. And so just in, in terms of, of giving us some opportunity to speak out loud, if you're new, we do this sometimes, is as you think about your Christian life, whether it be individually before God or being a part of a church, what, what are maybe some of the things that, that were harder than you thought they were going to be and that caused you to, to stop in your tracks, as it were, or if you're super vulnerable, that maybe even in seasons of your life caused you to disconnect whether from God or from his people altogether.
Thanks. If you didn't hear T, even in, in worship as singing sometimes, is you think, oh, that'd be simple. And you can't even hardly get through a, a singing a song without being distracted by a hundred other things, keeping up with the lyrics. And you might add, like, how? And it's just not easy, not even something that. That's great, T. What else? Here, Lauren, I know it's the voices don't carry super well in here. It, it can be very, as, as, as great as it may sound, to hear other people, love people, hear their story. It can be very hard for us to let our walls down, to let other people in. hope I said that right, but I resonate with that myself. Who else? What's been harder than you thought when it comes to following Jesus or being a part of his people? Guys, he said, people don't change fast just like me. Abby said, the guilt that comes with being inconsistent. I think we, we feel these things and we're just like, I knew this was going to be hard. And if it's like, if you're like me, I can be the person who, I read the book on this already. <laughs> but then life reveals, maybe I didn't really know what I thought I knew. Maybe I didn't really believe what I thought I believed. And the reality is, and you know, I'm not super old, but what it's been very humbling for me, and sorry to discourage you if, if this is, is it doesn't get easier the older you get. You're not going to arrive. You're not going to say, wow, if I could just get through my 20s or just get through my 30s or just get through my 40s, if I can just get through my 50s, if I can just get to this point in my life, then finally I'll just like be owning this thing. And the reason is, is we are at war. The Bible makes it very clear that there are oppositional forces against us that are not going to quit and are not going to stop assaulting us and pulling us away from the joy of the gospel that we are to experience in ourselves and together until Jesus returns. This is why Paul says here in verse 10, he says, finally... It's he's summing up this book that has given us such a beautiful picture of the gospel and such a beautiful picture of what it means to be the people of God. In chapter 1, you might could think of more, he's told us we are the chosen, adopted, redeemed people of God who have been created to live for his glorious grace. There may not be any more magnificent and beautiful picture of who we are in Christ than Ephesians chapter 1. It is amazing. And then he says, you've been given the spirit of wisdom and revelation to actually know God. And you've been given a glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus that nothing or no one in this world can mess with. Your bank account on this earth goes empty. Everyone else in this world rejects you. Jesus is secured everything you need. In chapter 2, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, by nature children of wrath, but by His grace we have been saved. Through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
not just so that we have a good understanding of what happened to us, but so that we actually are able to live out the life of the good workmanship that Christ has made us. And then at the end of chapter 2, that it doesn't matter what race, class, or gender that we are, we are one in Christ and one together. We are a holy temple. In chapter 3, connected to what we'll look at today, we see that the church is not merely a display of the wisdom, of the victory, of the gospel, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in this world, but has been designed and purposed according to God's eternal purpose in Christ to display the wisdom of the gospel even to every spiritual realm. It's amazing. As the church, we are a part of this. In chapter 4, we see that we're called to go forth in the character and fruit of the Spirit and the unity of the gospel, equipped by the gifts of the Spirit, protected from false doctrine, and protecting one another's hearts as we speak the truth in love. We're called to live out the new creations that we are in Christ. And in chapter 5, we do that in the face of sexuality, singleness, marriage, and family, and in the everyday stuff of life in our workplaces, neighborhoods, and homes as those who are united with Jesus Christ, the victorious Son of God. It's amazing. If you've not been with us, just encourage you to read through Ephesians, asking yourself, who is God? What has He done in Christ? Who am I? And what am I empowered to do? But, as glorious as that reality is, the resistance is just as real. We are not unopposed in God's call for us to believe and experience and engage in this reality. So Paul says, giving you this big vision, but finally, if we're going to live this out, we're going to have to be strong. Be strong in the face of war. So as Christians, we're called to engage the life of following Jesus' war. And how do we do this? The first thing we have to do is we've got to know our orders as his people. We've got to know our mission. We've got to know our call. And what is the assignment that we've been given in the face of this war? The first assignment we've been given is to be strong in the Lord. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So first off, this is kind of like a call to a passive engagement. So track with me here. To talk about a passive engagement means it's not, first of all, about you doing anything. It's not about you being strong in your work. It's not about you being strong in your might. It's about you being strong in the Lord. It's this theme in Ephesians of union with Christ. That we have been united with Jesus through faith. That it's not, first of all, about us doing anything. It's just about us resting and realizing that everything that we need is found in Him. And if we're going to be strong in this battle, we are not going to find that strength by looking in the mirror. We're not going to find that strength by looking to our record. We're not going to find that strength through looking even to our, our will and our works. We will only find this strength by resting and abiding in Christ. So the active side of this is we have to actively abide in Him. We have to pursue Him. We have to rest in Him. And if you don't think that calls for activity, you've not tried it. 
it is hard to not do something. It is very hard to, to just say, I am putting all the stock of who I am in my life, my identity, my calling, my very purpose in who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what the call is, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's our first order, but also we're to put on the whole armor of God. The next week we'll look at this armor in detail in verses 14 through 17. But just to go ahead and say, we have to put this whole armor on. It's not a piecemeal thing. We have to realize that it's called armor here. This is warfare language. This is battle language. This is telling us this is a serious fight. You're going to be shot at. This, this isn't just giving us as Christians like some flannel graph stories. This is saying we need to get sober-minded here. As First Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You are on a hit list. But it's the armor of God. This is the good news. It's, it's the armor not just from God, but it's, it's of God. He's the source of it. This is in Isaiah is where this is initially referred to that Paul is pulling from. And in that context, it's, it's talking more than just an armor God provides. It's talking of an armor that God is. And as we look at each of these things, we'll see that what this armor is, is it's just a representation of the character of God that becomes integrated into our lives so that when we stand against the enemy, so that we stand in the fight, we're not standing again in our own strength. We're standing in His strength because we're standing in who He is. And that's the goal. Why do we do these things? Middle of verse 11, so that you may be able to stand. To not quit. To not check out when it gets hard. Because guess what? The victory is already won. This settled. Jesus has won. Our call now is we got to stay in the ring. We got to keep the resistance going. We got to keep the fight going. That's all we got to do, really. It's just not quit. It's just keep believing. Just keep fighting. Just stay in the ring. We know the victory is ours, and we know one day our king is going to return and cons consummate everything that he conquested in the cross. But this is hard. And some of us, no doubt, in this room this morning, have become a little too civilized when it comes to being a Christian. Have started to coast. And Satan is very content with you to do that. He's very content with all of us in here to, to fill our heads full of knowledge. He's very content even with all of us in here to have discussions about our hearts and our emotions and how they relate and all these things are important. He is very content for us to go out into this neighborhood to, to families of crisis pregnancy and into our everyday lives and to do good deeds. 
He's very content with us to engage in all of those things just as long as Jesus is not exalted through us reveling in and rejoicing in the gospel in ourselves and helping others connect to the life-giving kingdom that he brings. As a part of my discipleship at home right now, one of the most important things that I'm doing is introducing my children to the Rocky movies. You thought I was going to say something serious. All right. But I am kind of serious. If you don't like the Rocky movies, you're missing out. One of the underrated Rocky movies, I think, is Rocky Three. Rocky Three gets a bad, bad rap because you have Hulk Hogan in it playing somebody by the name of, is it it's Hot Lips or Thunder Lips? I can't imagine. You don't, I can't remember. But it also has Mr. T as the main enemy. But what happens in Rocky Three, if you don't know the, the overarching storyline of Rocky, Rocky One, he's proven to the world he's not a bum. He fights Apollo Creed at the end. He loses, but he went the distance. He showed, I can stay in the fight. Rocky Two, it's all about him beating Apollo Creed. Rocky Three, he's the man now. He's coasting. He's at the top of his game. So instead of being this, this tough guy from the streets, now he's this, this sophisticated guy who basically fights people in promotional fights that amount to little to nothing. But he comes up against Clubber Lane, or Mr. T, who's still got his edge. And so Mickey, his manager, as he points this out to him, he says, Rocky, you, you can't handle him. You've become too civilized, and he's hungry. So he gets beat. He gets just destroyed. And it humbles him. And all of us put ourselves in that position when we become too civilized as Christians. Some of us too civilized to even acknowledge that an enemy exists. But the enemy's hungry. He's hungry. And so it's time for us to prepare to fight. And what's the best part of the Rocky movies? It's the training. Right? It's him getting ready. It's the, it's the eye of the tiger. And then it's him getting in the ring with that eye of the tiger and fighting all of these enemies and standing his ground. And this is how we've got to approach it. We've got to take the preparation seriously so that we can take the fight seriously. And for some of us, that means we've got to get humble enough to know how dependent we are on our union with Christ. And that experience in standing strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might means that we're going to have to be able to do, be willing to do whatever it takes that we participate more deeply in that union that we have with Him. Rocky three. guess what Apollo has him doing to train? Does anybody remember this? He's chasing chickens in an alleyway. And he's very frustrated because I'm, I'm the, I was the heavyweight title champion of the world and you've got me chasing chickens? But it was to develop his agility. It was to develop his quickness. But it also was to get him to a place of humility where I will do whatever it takes 
This is, this is what we have to realize when it comes to the spiritual disciplines. Is that spending time in communion with Christ through the word and through prayer and through community is not thrown out there so that you feel guilty. Like, right? here's stuff that I'm supposed to do. No, really, spirit, abiding in Christ is not, first of all, about an issue of getting us to be disciplined. It's an issue of getting us to realize how dependent we are. You can discipline yourself through it all the time, but what it looks like to abide in Christ is to realize, I can't live without this. I just can't live without it. As Martin Luther said, I'm too busy not to pray. When we're too busy to pray, that's just saying, I've not yet got to the end of myself. I still think that I can do this without that. It's like Cassie sometimes won't drink water. She'll like, go all day. I didn't drink. I've not drank anything. I'm like, How could you not drink anything? I'm too busy to drink. If you don't drink, you're not going to be able to do anything. Somebody's saying, I'm, I'm too stressed, too busy to read God's word is like someone saying, I'm too hungry to eat. I just don't have time to eat. We don't only need to get humble, we need to get hopeful. Abby mentioned this, 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 this guilt with our inconsistency. Yes, we are going to be inconsistent. Yes, we are going to fail. Yes, we are not going to arrive, but we can get right back up, right? When Rocky Four, when Drago, bam, knocks us down. Rocky Three, Clubber Lane, knocks us down. One and two, Apollo Creed, whatever. Is how do we get back up? Not in the strength of our might, but we put our eyes on Jesus and we just get back up. Say, so you can't win this battle. You can't win. I'm going to get back up with my eyes on Jesus. And we get honest enough to let other people help us in that. Because we face a real enemy. And who is our enemy? So if our orders are to be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God so that we can stand, who is our enemy? Well, we know in the Bible that we have at least three main enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we need to put our sights on all of those. But in this text, there's the focus on this third one, the devil. If any of you need some good reading on this, I'd recommend C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. So it's, it's kind of like a novel, but it's a conversation between demons on how they trick humans. There's audio version if you need to listen to it on the ride, but it's great. And one of the things it says in the Screwtape Letters is that the general public prefers either to ignore the forces of evil altogether, that is to pretend they don't exist, and so they use cartoon images of a devil with horns and hoofs, as an argument to that effect, and so we say, you can't believe that nonsense. Or they lead us in the other extreme to take an unhealthy interest in everything demonic. So everything's demonic now. Everything's to be rebuked in the name of Jesus. Everything is just about the devil, which can be just as bad in the long run. So when we think about knowing our enemy, we have to know who he's not. He's not a cartoon in red tights with a pitchfork. Where everybody can just walk around and say, oh, there's the devil. He's not a, a, a joke from Waterboy, right? You know, mama says that's the devil. Not an endorsement of watching that. But it's, this is how the world talks about it, right? The devil's a joke. Cartoon. 
But in the scriptures, whom the devil, who the devil is, is he's a real personal being. He hates God, and he hates everyone who bears God's image. He really hates humans because we've been created in God's image to reflect his glory. He doesn't really care if you're a Christian or not. He hates you. And the Bible says he's out to steal, kill, and destroy, but he especially hates Christians, and he especially hates the church because we are a reminder of the supremacy of God over him through the victory of the kingdom of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, contrary to the vision that some would give us that the devil's easy to spot, it says he disguises himself as an angel of light. So how the devil will be or appear or manifest as whatever or whomever it takes to trick you. He often makes himself look like your dream come true. And he has schemes. We're called to stand against these schemes. Let me give you some of these schemes. The first one is to accuse you. Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. What he wants to tell you is everything you've read about who God is and who you are in Christ in Ephesians, guess what? That's a fairy tale. You know you stink. You know you're a failure. You know you don't have anything good coming to you in life. You know that we're all just sitting around here pretending that this stuff is true so we can sleep better at night. You know nobody really believes this junk. You know it was made up by men thousands of years ago. You know that there's many ways that you could believe this, and many people in many parts of the world believe this. So why should you believe it's true? If you want to keep believing in this fairy tale, you can. If you want to keep deceiving yourself, if you want to keep, as Mark said, taking the opiate of the masses just so there's not utter chaos, Hey, go for it. But at the end of the day, all you are is a piece of random, meaningless matter floating through the universe in a world of darkness that is one day going to just be consumed and over with, and you'll never be remembered. Merry Christmas. He wants to divide us. Ephesians 4.27, we read this, says, Don't be, be angry, but do not sin. Why? Because you will give the devil a foothold. He wants to divide people. Because a united people of God images the beauty of a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, of eternal love and commitment to one another. So the thing he wants to do in our fight clubs, the thing he wants to do in our missional communities, the things he wants to do in our church, is he wants to divide us. He wants to sow seeds of division. He wants to make us angry and sin. He wants us to become bitter with each other. He's also an author of confusion. In Genesis, he comes to Eve and says, Did God really say that? Did God really say that? He hates the clarity of Ephesians. He hates the clarity that we are given of truth. And his confusion can aid accusation and division. He also tempts us. In Matthew 4, we see him taking Jesus and tempting him at the place of his vulnerabilities. You're in the wilderness and you're hungry. Here, I have some bread. He traps us. 1 Timothy 3.7 speaks of his temptations as a snare. And in all these things, he's a liar. 
John 8, 44. He is the father of lies, the slanderer of God. And he's good at this, but again, it's, none of this is obvious. It's all plausible. God's word says plausible lies. It could be 90% true, but he's, he's, got, he's setting the hook. He's, he's put truth all around the hook, and we're swimming along. He's just praying we'll bite. And he's not alone. So verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So this is speaking of humanity. Sit in our primary battle with each other. But rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces. Paul's just taking this same reality from four angles here. But we know this reality isn't earthly people. Some would like to argue that, but it's very, the contrast here is just clear. Not against flesh and blood, but against these things. We have to know our enemy. Sorry for all the, the male-dominated references here, Rocky. Now I'm going to go to football. My wife reminds me not to do this. That's all I got. So in sports, a good team watches video. When I played football, Monday is video day. You play any sport, any, any, really anything competitive, it's not just about you being prepared to do what you're called to do. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to know their strategies. You've got to know their strengths. You've got to know your weaknesses. You've got to know who you are, but you've also got to know who they are. And what we've got to learn to do as the people of God is not just acknowledge our enemy, but we've got to become aware of what he's doing. And we've got to realize this isn't just a one-time thing. He's going to change his game plan up. If you start to see, ah, I see what's happening now. Well, he's going to tweak that game plan. This is a, a real personal enemy that we're talking about. And so we've got to be aware. We've got to be aware of the lies of accusation. So we don't have time to do all this right now, but in your, in your heart, in your mind, in your time even this week, what are the lies of accusation that you are particularly vulnerable to? What are the tapes that play over and over in your head? You're a failure. You're unloved. You're alone. You're uniquely unfixable. You've got to prove yourself. Whatever they are, you need, to, you need to just say, this is not of the Lord. This is not a voice I should listen to. What lures of division? And they're there. Who in the life of the church, in your, in your workplace, in your home, in your school? You know, I, I really need to give them the cold shoulder so that they know how bad they hurt me. I really don't need to forgive them yet. I need to feel it. You know, when they posted that on GroupMe, or you know, when they said that in the meeting, I think they were implying that about me. I bet there's more to that. I think I'll lay on my bed tonight and think for an hour over every angle of what that could have meant. Why should I even go anymore? 
I don't want to go be around a bunch of phonies. We've got to be aware. We're at war. Jesus says the world will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. The enemy wants nothing more than to, to just have us all living our individual Christian lives. What leaks of confusion. Where is God saying, where is the enemy saying to you, did God really say that? Tim Keller says what, what the enemy will do is he'll accent God's love when he wants to lead us into sin. And forgiveness and grace, and as soon as he gets us to sin, he'll accent God's judgment and wrath. It's a trick. And what temptations is he setting before you at the point of your vulnerability? Some of you are, are all about order, justice, and, and when you live in a chaotic world, where is he setting like, Here's the bait. You shouldn't just you should just not care anymore. Nobody else cares. So why don't you just quit? Some of you who really love to help others, and he's going to hold the bait and say, Nobody really appreciates you. You're, you're entitled to be appreciated. Why don't you just go off on them for once? Others who care about getting things done right. And it just seems like nobody else, everybody else is just winging. So why not be apathetic? Others in your authenticity, the, the bait of manipulation. Others who love to make things peaceful for others. But deep down, the enemy's whispering in your ear, you know everything's going to fall apart. Anxiety is all you got. And what lies are beneath them all? Because there are. The enemy is lying. So we know our orders, we know our enemy. And lastly and quickly, we know our hope. God's word says here, this, we, we live in this present darkness. It's real. Evil is real. Evil's not just a psychological manifestation of dysfunction and disorders. We live in a world of holocaust, of genocides, of molestations, great sins, and we live in a world of lust, envy, greed, gluttony, sloth, anger that stirs in all our hearts. But it's, it's nothing new. There, there's a song by a songwriter I write where it says, uh, Mom, Mama always said or something that God won't give you more than you're able to bear. That might be true in Arkansas, but I'm a long, long way from there. Now, debate withstanding on what it means to say God won't give us more than we can bear is the thoughts of the world is that Christians live in a fantasy land anybody who thinks that hadn't read the Bible 
When Jesus came into this world, it was not a simpler time. It was a time of political displacement where his family that he was going to be born into was forced to migrate to a foreign land. It was a time of child murder where every boy born to and under was to be killed. It was a time of crucifixions where if you opposed the Roman government, it wasn't just one. Sometimes we think of Jesus' crucifixion as unique and there's these three crosses. No, these crosses were everywhere. They would line the roadway so that everybody knew if you do not bow the knee to Caesar, you will suffer an excruciating and painful, humiliating death. It was a time where if you upset a ruler like John the Baptist did, your head could be served on a platter at the next party. And into this world, though, we see God invading in the person of Jesus Christ. That the light of the world has come. That just as we read in, the, in, the, in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, so in John 1 we read that the Word became flesh. And why? 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children, that is human, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In his life he invades in this great act of war against the powers of darkness. And then on the cross we read in Colossians 1 that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And how did He do that? Because of Colossians 2, 13-15 says that we who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is no longer anything that the enemy can use to accuse us. That has any authority in our lives. Why? Verse 15. Because he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And one day he will return, as Revelation 20.10 says, and the devil who has deceived them, the nations, will be thrown into the lake of fire. And we as his people today, even though we face a great fight, we are called to embrace a greater faith because Jesus has won. We need to be sober-minded, but we need not fear that the enemy wins. We need to sing with all our heart what we sang in Christ alone. Nothing can pluck us from the hand of Christ. We resist the devil not by mainly looking at our sin, looking at our suffering, or even focusing on him as Satan. We put our eyes on Jesus. When all we see is the darkness of our sin, we put our eyes on the light of the world. 
When all we see is the darkness of our suffering, we put our eyes on the light of the world. When all we see is the enemy, the darkness, and the forces of evil in the world, we put our eyes on our Savior. Thomas Brooks, written an excellent book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's an old little Puritan paperback. I would just encourage any of you to get this and read this during this Christmas season. This is what he said, the remedy against these devices of Satan is to look upon all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. Colossians 2 again, as debts that the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied. All our sins were made to rest upon Christ. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And he gives this little illustration. You know the wife who said to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my husband. So may the believer say to the law, to the justice of God, or to the devil, if I owe you anything, go to my Christ, who has done all things for me. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of the victory of Jesus. We thank you that the wrath of God was satisfied, but we also thank you there has been victory over all evil through the life, death, resurrection, reign and return of Jesus. And as we come to the table now, Father, may we taste and see that he is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.